Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas. I'm chef owner of a few joints here around Seattle, including the Serious Takeout in Ballard, 52nd and 14th Northwest. Seatown Restaurant, the north end of the Pike Place Market area. I'm not allowed to say in the Pike Place Market, just so you know, uh, because that's, <laughs> that is privately controlled. And uh, also Serious Pie and Dahlia Bakery right here in downtown Seattle. And I, I did my first... My personal first. We've been open here at the hot stove for a month now for in-house classes. And I taught my first in-house class here this week. And it's where my taste of the week comes from. Uh, but uh, it was very exciting to be in, fr- in front of uh, folks again here, including in the very front row, Terry. There was uh, 11 women in a bridal shower party. Uh, oh, wow. They were pretty. Fun. And, and they, they were, were excited. They were having a good time. <laughs> And who is this? That's the awesome. chef and the chapeau. I'm Terry Rotro, the chef in a hat from Madison Valley, and uh, well, from Luke Restaurant uh, for another forty days. Yeah. So, are you getting? Um, are you filled up for the last forty so far? Oh, oh yes. We are definitely like it's filling up every day. Mm-hmm. We uh, last night we had the French ambassador to the U.S. Wow. and the consul general of San Francisco coming in. So that was really fun. But uh, no, it's been really nice, and people have a lot of memory and a lot of sadness going. Oh, you know, what are you going? Where are you going to move in, Luke? Where are you going to do next? Uh-huh. Next, I'm going to go take it easy with Tom. We're going to go take it easy and go around the country and see who's making good food. <laughs> good idea. I didn't know that. But now I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Blue highways. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. You betcha. Uh, today we've got a big jam-packed two-hour show. Uh, we have peak of the season cucumbers, what to do with those. Jennifer Shea is going to join us uh, from Trophy Cupcakes. She tempts us with all of her amazing blueberry concoctions this time of year. We debate whether or not uh, eating foie gras grown from animal cells in a lab is better than eating foie gras. Is that what your intention is, better than eating it from a duck? I would just want to talk about the whole weirdness of growing foie in a lab. Well, it's, it's not all that different, I don't think, than the Impossible Burger, where they're growing it from... I'm opposed to that, too. Oh, uh, okay. So. <laughs> Chef Ross Lewis, I hope you're prepared to Deeded talk about out. it. Yes. Chef Ross Lewis uh, from Trace Restaurant, which is the place down at the W Hotel. You know, that restaurant, um, in, the op- in the time that the W's been open, I think that restaurant has had more restaurants than I've had in my whole career. <laughs> Oh, they have changed a few times, haven't they, Chef? Yes, no, they have. You're right. Yeah, uh, Hot Stove is starting a dim sum series where you actually come here, you make dim sum, and uh, Dreamboat Annie over there is going to be your chef instructor, uh, and uh, you make dim sum, and then you eat it, right, Pamela? Absolutely. So many tastes, and it's a series, and uh-huh. there's different tastes at each one in the series. And you know, I think what would be really interesting in the maybe keep Annie in line a little bit because she gets a little uppity over Uh-oh. there. She thinks she's the best chef in history. Um, but it would be fun. I, Annie, don't you think it would be kind of fun to uh, bring in a classic and then uh, put it up, uh, have it alongside of some of the stuff that the, the classmates make? Oh, boy. Don't you think that would be a good idea? No, she doesn't think that's a good idea. <laughs> no, okay. Of course she doesn't. Uh, of course, uh, it's, uh, if you want to know more about it, just go to hotstove.com. Uh, and then lastly, it's our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Right here uh, in the house is going to be who? Who's going to be our competitor today? Steamboat Annie. Steamboat Annie. Dreamboat. Dreamboat oh. Annie. Oh. 
All right. Oh, my God. I know. She's feisty, feisty, feisty. That is a tough challenge right there. All right, Chef, uh, your taste of the week. I'm going to go right with mine because um, I've got it on the tip of my tongue. I made it here in class, and it reminded me that, dang, I need to make this more often. It's the from my uh, second book, Tom's Big Dinners. There's a whole chapter on cooking from the Pike Place Market. This time, though, we mm-hmm. cooked from Prosser Farm. Jackie had brought over apricots and peppers and tomatoes and eggplants and corn and all sorts of things. And I made uh, fresh corn crepes out of a recipe out of this book. And mm-hmm. I'm happy to share it online if you don't want to buy the book. Um, but um, we're also going to have a lucky winner of the book today. But it's just, I just remember, you know, you make such beautiful crepes, but uh, that lacy brown that you get on a perfect crepe and this uh, this corn crepe had that it had it uh, pulsed uh, it put fresh grilled corn in the crepe uh, you know put it in the blender with the with the batter yeah. and it just was quite delicious and super fun and and great way to celebrate summer did you stuff your crepe with anything i did i took some of jackie's peppers and onions and sauteed those down with a little cilantro oh, goat nice. cheese and then we oh made a God, little ancho, ancho chili paste to put on top so wow <laughs> i can't beat that Sure. No, it's funny because mine is the same thing in the same realm of fruits. The fruit that are in season right now, mm-hmm. I made a fruit salad, very simple fruit salad with uh, um, plum. I had some dark plum, local dark plum, apricots, uh, raspberry. My God, I found some raspberry. They were the most delicious, true, true, true raspberry. I mean, it tasted so good. And um, put them at the last minute in there, toasted almond. And some anise sap blossom. My anise sap is in full blossom right now. So take all the blossoms off the, off the branch and put that into the salad. Let it sit on the counter for about 30 minutes. And at the last minute, diced in a few bananas, pieces. Oh, my God. That fruit salad was magical. It's just like this is summer. We're in Seattle, Washington. And I can't wait for blueberries because I'm going to go pick them next week. Mm-hmm. Um, go pick some blueberry at a farm. Then uh, we go every year. I'll bring you some, Tom. That sounds, I'll bring you some. That sounds fun. And you can do it outside and not be, uh, be close to anybody. Bring them to the show next week so we can have them with you. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll bring some. All right. And then we're going to look at the box that it comes in and make sure it doesn't say Met Market on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> that one is in Woodenville, so... <laughs> Good idea, Tom. Yeah, good idea. Uh, the other thing I want to say uh, is that um, I put all the ripe, fresh peppers. That, you know, I, I, I blistered them, took the peels off, sautéed them up, stuffed my corn crepe with it. But then I took ripe uh, pasillas, which are ancho peppers, and the, I got the dried ones, cut them open, seeded them, toasted them over an open flame, and then rehydrated them in fresh orange juice, onions, and garlic, mm-hmm. and then put them in the mm-hmm. blender and made a puree. And that's what I striped my my uh, corn crepe with. Mm. I just don't think people understand how to use dried peppers enough. Do you, uh, ever, I, do you ever use them? No, I'm afraid of And you're, uh, you're a good home cook, and you never t- uh, tackle that. But it's such an easy thing to do, but they're intimidating. Mm. They are. And so I think maybe we should do a little class on dried peppers. Yes, because, please. Because I think that they're... How to use your peppers. Yeah they're, yeah, they're really fun. And I love it as a base for homemade chili or sloppy joes or things like that. Up next, it's cucumbers. I'm running late here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. We're joined by Jackie Cross, my lovely wife, business partner and farmer-in-chief of Presser Farm. 
uh, right here in our very own Hot Stove Society studio. I'm Tom Douglas, and uh, welcome back. Let's talk some cucumbers. Uh, when I last, uh, every week, I, I don't get to the farm every week, but uh, every week you get to the farm and you bring back a carload or truckload of beautiful produce. Uh, the last couple of totes have included some crispy, uh, gorgeous cucumbers. But what I notice most about them is the skin is super thin this year. Uh, it's And uh, typically I think of that kind of thin skin being on like an English cuke. And so is this a variety of English cucumbers? It's a cucumber? variety. It's not an English for, uh, English cucumber per se and stuff. Did you have the fat ones or long skinny ones? I have two different varieties. Uh, I think I had, uh, well, they look like me, so maybe the fat ones. <laughs> they look like regular cucumbers. <laughs> Um, those are the Zagros, and I haven't been able to get seed for those for the last couple of seasons and stuff, and then that was back in production this year. It's one of my favorites. They stay really crispy. They are slow to get bitter, which I really like, and they size up nicely. And they do have that thinner skin, which I think is really great. And is it a smaller kind of a seed row in the center? Because, you know, the, the cucumbers that aren't English that you buy at the grocery store have a large kind of seed center. It's and- got... it's it. It tends towards the larger size okay. a little bit and stuff, but you can eat the seeds. They're super sweet and very um, and very tender. You know, they don't get... So it's one of my favorite varieties. Good. So I was happy so, to get the seed back this year. It looks like we're joined by Chef Terry, uh, row to row at this point on the show. Uh, he decided to update his computer in uh, the only two hours of the week that we... I, I don't see him looking at us here. Maybe not. Okay, no, he's not on yet. I want to uh, hear um, about that cucumber panna cotta. Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about from that dinner that, uh, you know, um, Jack, we were, you know, because you sent over all the produce, but we did a a Pike Place Farm cooking class here out of uh, my second book called Tom's Big Dinners, and uh, it included a cucumber panna cotta. So um, what did you like about it, Pamela, or what do you want to hear about it? I'd never had a cucumber flavor in that texture. All right, so if you've had panna cotta, it's like a milk gelatin, right? Typically it's sweet. And oftentimes made with buttermilk. And so all we did uh, when we wrote the book was take the sugar out of that. So we uh, put the cucumbers, chopped them coarsely, put them in a blender, and pureed them. Then ran it through a strainer. So I ended up with just cucumber juice. Juice. Mm. And then uh, I had fresh uh, buttermilk. Uh, And then we took the cream and we melted the uh, gelatin uh, in the cream. Mm. You know, we had those gelatin Mm. sheets. uh, Melted that in the cream and then poured that into the cucumber and the buttermilk. Uh, you can put any sort of herbage you want, but cucumber is so lightly flavored, I don't like to over-herb it. Absolutely. Uh, the cucumber really came through. Right, exactly, and that's what you that you want out of cucumber panna cotta. Uh, and then um, you chill it, and so it becomes like a jello. And we you take it out of the ramekin and uh, turn it out into your bowl uh, and shake it out so it comes out in a nice little puck of cucumber panna cotta. You have to keep it cold, so it's a cold bowl, cold cucumber, and then... We poured cold tomato soup around it and finished with basil oil, and it was delicious. It was, it was one of the prettiest things pretty. I've seen. Yeah, yeah. It looked really pretty. Real yeah. pretty. So that was uh, that was a delicious little for, what, foray into cucumbers. Jack, have you, you're a cocktail maven. Ah. Um, <laughs> let's talk cucumbers and cocktails. Do you have a favorite way to use them? Well, I I like them with gin best. I like that herbaceous flavor that gin has. Um, I have done a ton of experimenting and stuff like that, but I've muddled cucumbers with gin and stuff before and then strained it and then made like a gin and tonic and used that that uh, flavor of the cucumbers in with the tonic and stuff I think is really nice. 
Um, I also like the cucumber with mint and gin, which is a nice combo. Um, gin sounds perfect for cucumber. Yeah, with that because it's already herby and it yeah. really brings out that that nice crispness of the the cucumber. Mm. My favorite uh, thing for cucumbers anymore is more of an accent dish, I would say. I, I use cucumbers the most in two ways. One is in my tzatziki. I love a little cucumber mm-hmm. tzatziki. The other is a quick pickle. So I'll take the cucumbers and I'll slice them whatever size you want. I make I tend to make little kind of uh, batons with them. And then I do the uh, uh, little simple syrup on the stove out of, instead of water and sugar, I do vinegar and sugar. Uh, and maybe a little bit of water to kind of uh, lighten up the uh, acidic level, but um, but mostly vinegar and sugar. Get that to a boil, and then simply just pour it right over top of the cucumbers and let them sit for a half hour. Uh, and you get one type of pip- pickle. If you let them sit overnight in the fridge, you get a whole other style of pickle. But uh, they they don't need to be canned, and they'll last in your refrigerator for, I don't know, maybe four, four or five days. It's a super quick. Nice little side dish for so many, so many things. Like if uh, we've been serving this huli huli chicken this month out at the dock in our pop-up. And that, when you get that kind of salty chicken, it's that cucumber pickle is a really nice way to break up the salt level, level from the huli huli. I can't talk this morning. <laughs> Too much coffee. You, uh, Loretta went through a stage of loving cucumbers, I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she just wanted them cold and mm-hmm. salty. Well, I mean, and then... Y- I don't know if you've been to Mexico, you get those ones on the street corner in the little baggies where they give you the sliced cucumber with salt and a little chili pepper and stuff on top. And you can just pick them up for, you know, five cents. The kids sell them on the street. It's so delicious. And that's when she got into that, you know. Oh, it came from a Mm -hmm. trip there with the chili salt. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And she, she also picked up a taste for mackerel there. Do you remember when the mackerel was being sold on the stick? No. Yeah. I remember that we got the little fishes, but yeah. was I eating mackerel? Yes. You were eating mackerel. <laughs> and we also saw that very same presentation when we were at uh, Oktoberfest in Munich, that mackerel on a stick was all over the place. People loved it. And uh, it's a farm-raised fish, so you, get it, um, you can get it pretty much Everywhere. anywhere in the world. Yeah. So cucumbers uh, love the heat. They've been doing great. They do. They love the heat. They grow so fast. They're like, I mean, they're like zucchinis if you can grow zucchinis in your backyard. Um, cucumbers, they grow fast. We pick them three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and stuff, and they just go like wildfire. They're great, and they really resist the heat, which is terrific. Now, I find myself, when I pick cucumbers, I get itchy. Is that, yeah. what, what's, the thing, what's the thing about that? It's, well, if you, their leaves are super scratchy. They have like little tiny pointy um stickers like brillo pads on the on uh-huh. the outside of them and stuff and they'll irritate your skin a lot and is that the same with uh, all melons like like that melons will do the same thing uh-huh. winter squash will do the same thing zucchini definitely will do the same thing huh. yeah i could um, i could live without the itchiness i'll take the cucumbers you can pick them i'll eat them just wear long sleeves and gloves uh, you know, I was at a restaurant uh, down in Pioneer Square where they took the cucumbers and threw them right in the coal, had coal-fired cucumbers. Weird. And it was weird. I didn't love it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought it was trying to be too a little too esoteric. They do saute up, though, nicely. Do they? You know, just gentle saute and yeah. stuff like that with olive oil. And- well, well, we'll just have to find out. This doesn't... Uh, I love how cool and crisp and crunchy they are. Yeah, Cooking sure. them never sounds very good to me. Up next... Jennifer Shea is going to join us. Uh, She is the author of Trophy Cupcakes. And it's blueberry season, and we're going to find out what she's got going on with blueberries. When we come back, it's the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM.
We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen here on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rocher, the chef in a hat. And Thierry, you look like a big blueberry on my screen today, coming from Madison Valley. You're, you got a little purple hue. Have you been eating uh, blueberries? Or you've been out in the fields I, picking them? I, honestly, I have not had blueberry <laughs> yet, but next week I'm going to go pick them. So uh, I can't wait. Well, we've invited you. It's something I look forward to. Yeah, we've invited invited Jennifer Shea here. She is the owner of Trophy Cupcakes. And, of course, uh, she has seasonal concoctions that blow your mind. Pamela, you're a big fan of the way her stores look because they're so inviting. It's just you can't walk by without getting a cupcake, and I'm kind of pissed off about it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, let's talk to Jennifer Wait, and see if that makes her angry. to make you happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to make you happy. <laughs> they are happy. You always feel happy. <laughs> Hi, Jennifer, yeah. and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Tell us about your your uh, your stores, uh, how beautiful they are, uh, according to Pamela, and your uh, attempts at making blueberry nirvana. Well, thank you. I, uh, you know, I feel like a cupcake store just has to be cute. So, you know, we, we do a lot to make sure they're super inviting and that they're an experience. So when you walk in, you can't help but smile. And of course, uh, eat cupcakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing blueberry Washington blueberry cupcakes pretty much since we started. Way back in the day when we just had Wallingford Center, the farmer's market used to be in the parking lot there. And at that point, I met uh, one of the farmers from Sidhu Farms and started buying our blueberries right from him in the parking lot. And uh, it just has grown from there. You know, the mm-hmm. Washington produces the most blueberries in the whole United States. And we're so lucky to live in an area where we can get this beautiful fruit locally. So, of course, we try to pack it into all of our treats. We have the cupcake that's filled with our house-made blueberry uh, filling, and we've got a blueberry cheesecake macaron that's delicious. We've got a blueberry lemonade cake, uh, and the list goes on. We just when they're in season, we try to put them in everything. So when you work with, uh, when you make a filling for a cupcake, uh, what's the best way to go about it? It has to be a certain thickness or it's just not going to stay there, right? Yeah, we use a little bit of arrowroot to thicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because some people are allergic to corn and cornstarch and different things like that. So uh, pretty much we keep it as simple as possible. So the flavor of the blueberries really shines. And we start with those Washington blueberries, uh, put them in a big pot, add a little bit of lemon juice. Um, not too much sugar, just enough to brighten the flavor, and then add a little bit of arrowroot to thicken it. Because, like you said, in, inside a cupcake, especially, it's got to be thick enough that the juices aren't making the cupcake soggy. So yeah. that's the that's the key is the perfect texture. And do you cook your do you cook them long enough that the skins break down, or is do you like the big chunky blueberry left in there? It's kind of right in the middle. So a lot of them break down, but you'll still get a burst of, you know, a whole berry here and there. Mm-hmm. I like that kind of mouthfeel of, of really being able to taste the berry. Yeah, that's the way I like my jam. It's like, you know, you put that on a nice piece of toast. You want to be able to have at least a little feel of the fruit, you know, like strawberry, raspberry or whatever, any or blueberry. You want to make sure there's a little Absolutely. chew in there. So, no, it's, and it's so delicious. I mean, blueberries are like you said, you don't need much sugar. It goes well with a little squeeze of lemon. That's it. I mean, you, you know, it's a very, very easy fruit. And it's also a fruit that lasts for a long time in your refrigerator or on your counter. So it's not like it goes bad. Like raspberries, when they're perfect, 
they don't last very long or strawberry, but blueberry lasts a lot longer. They're sturdy fruit, so it's nice. Jennifer, now that now you got blueberry in the center, what do you have to do to make the perfect blueberry icing so that it doesn't it's not all weepy and gross? <laughs> you know, that is a challenge. Weepy and gross is never good when you're talking about dessert. And when we first were when we were first working on uh, our blueberry recipe and, you know, back in the first couple of years of Trophy, it did have a blueberry buttercream, mm-hmm. but we kept on having issues with that, you know, separation. And so for our recipe, we actually moved to a vanilla bean buttercream. Uh, so it's a, you know, our vanilla butter cake, but then we really fill it with the, with the blueberry uh, compote. And then the blueberry, the, the vanilla buttercream complements it really well. And you're still getting plenty of blueberry since it's so full in the center. And then we don't have to worry about um, that fruit kind of separating from the buttercream. Right. But mm-hmm. if you are doing that at home, the trick is really like taking your blueberries, uh, you know, a little bit further than you would for a fill. So you're really kind of simmering out all of the liquid because you want, you know, the least amount of liquid uh, when you're adding it to a buttercream. If you can get a very thick kind of uh, really boiled down um, concoction, that's the best thing to add to a buttercream because you're not, you know, increasing the liquid level, which can really, you know, tend to Get to that place that you said, weepy and gross. You yeah. don't want that. You don't want that, exactly. <laughs> you know, my little trick is, it's, and it's it's not really seasonal, I would say, but it is taking freeze-dried blueberries and either crushing them into a powder and making a little icing out yep. of that or, uh, you know, mincing uh, little bits and pieces of just dried blueberries into your vanilla buttercream, and you, you get a, more of a, a little bit of a, a chew, like a raisin kind of chew uh, in right, your right. icing itself. Yeah. So. But it, it, That's a it, great tip, and actually, uh, Bow Hill Farms, one of the local organic blueberry farms, they make a blueberry powder that's amazing. Yeah, that's and a great you product. can use it for so many things. It could be yeah, like, in a smoothie because of all the antioxidants, or you can throw it into a buttercream. It's just an amazing product. Makes makes great cocktail rims. Oh. I use yeah. rimming, rimming cocktail. Yeah, cocktail. Oh, man, that's good. So when you do that, Chef, do you delicious. take like a lemon, you run it around the glass rim, and then you dip it into the blueberry powder? Exactly. Okay. It's exactly how I do it. And it's really tasty because, uh, again, the lemon and the blueberry, for some reason, I think that those are a marriage that works really well. And uh, with a cocktail, you just make a nice – and in the vodka, you just do a, a martini, a vodka martini with a, a drop of uh, blueberry puree in it. Oh, man. That's a nice little refresher. Wow, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Goes good with you cupcake, also no doubt. A little early, but that sounds good right now. <laughs> and Jennifer, you had another blueberry fantasy I was reading about, besides the cupcake, right? Something with um, cheesecake or. I have so many fantasies. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, good. Just, just leave uh, Terry and I out the... of it. Leave Terry and I out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're probably the blueberry, blueberry cheesecake macaron. Is that what you're yeah. thinking? That's yeah. a, another one that we have. I want to hear about uh, that. So we, yeah, so we do a really pretty blue swirled macaron biscuit and then a ring of our cream cheese buttercream and then that same blueberry filling that's in the cupcake we'll put right in the center of the macaron. 
And those mm. are just like a little bite of heaven. They're so good. And uh, so recommend how, those for picnics and they're great. How long does that last at Macron? You know, the reason that I love Macron's is because they freeze really well. I oh. usually have boxes of them in my freezer because I love to either, you know, bring them out if somebody comes over or take them for a hostess gift. But, you know, if they're at room temperature, probably two days. Mm. Uh, but you can pop them in the fridge for up to like four or five days. But again, I mean, most bakeries freeze their macarons because they actually get a little better the longer the biscuit has time to absorb all of the flavors. So I, that's why I love macarons because you're not worried about shelf life in the same way as a fresh baked cupcake. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of leaving them on the counter like you do uh, for a day or two, but because it allows them to stay dry. But you can also put them in like a Tupperware kind of idea with a little dry sachet so it doesn't um, become too moist because that's the problem with macaron is as soon as they get humidity, they become soggy. So yeah, that's exactly. a good idea. You know, I like uh, the freezing idea, though. That's very, very cool. I've done that, too. And it, they freeze marvelously, actually. Really? I've never tried that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. So. Uh, and, uh, Jennifer, we only have 30 seconds left. Anything else? You have? Where, where are your locations so people can get out there and try some blueberry magic? So we are in University Village. We still have our original shop in the Wallingford Center. We have a little shop on Queen Anne uh, that's on Gaylor, the same street as Molly Moon's up there. Um, and then we are over in Bellevue at the Braeburn, right across from the Gucci store. Right across from the Gucci. The Gucci of cupcakes. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yes, because we are the Gucci of cupcakes. There you go. All right. Well, have a, have a good that. season. Enjoy the fruits of your labor, so to speak. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Everyone get out there and get a blueberry macaron or a blueberry cupcake from Trophy Cupcakes. Say hi to Jennifer for us. All right. Uh, up next, we want to hear what Thank Terry you. and Tom think about... Foie gras growing in a lab. Is that what you want to do, Pamela? Yes, please. All right. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And Pamela, our producer, has a bee in her bonnet about uh, some news she's been reading about foie gras. And so, uh, Pamela, maybe you should take us into this segment and pose your question. It's going to be embarrassing because with my New England accent, it's really hard for me to say foie gras. So every time I say it, I'm going to bungle it. You just did beautifully. Well. Okay, good. The news last week that there was a ten million dollar investment in a lab in Paris to grow foie from duck liver cells just has me incensed. The people behind the money feel like we all still need to eat foie, but it has to be produced in a more sustainable way because so many states and countries have banned serving foie because of the way it's produced with the animals being force-fed and tipped over and then they can't even walk. So it's Which is the, not all. Not all producers some, do that. Yeah, some. Um, yeah. Right. So the animal cruelty element has got... Um, some jurisdictions worked up and forbidding it. So this solution uh, to grow it in a lab um, has come forward. And I am very frustrated by foods that imitate real food that are artificial and think people should just eat 
food as it is grown. <laughs> there are so, so many wonderful alternatives. So I really wanted to hear from Terry about it. Is this a product uh, I should grow up and get over and uh, embrace? Or uh, should I march in the streets and say, don't grow food in a lab? Well, number one, yes, on the last one. <laughs> I mean, you know what? We should grow food in the lab that we need to take to space. We should grow food in a lab that we know will save the planet and people. Uh, maybe those are ideas that we can look into. But foie gras is such an elite food. It's not a necessity food. You know, it is definitely like the candy bar and, you know, you buy once every five years or whatever. It's like no one eats foie gras every day. Well, maybe a few people in France, but they should grow their own duck as far as I'm concerned. But the idea of making it so then what? It becomes the most expensive mass produce uh, or lab produced item. I'm like, I'm not quite understanding the process here. First of all is how many ducks does it take? And also, yes, you said the process. Well, the process has been definitely elaborated a lot compared to the, the, uh, the funnel that goes in the, in the duck's mouth and the pushing into that. That stuff has gone a lot more progressive. And, and you know, there's plenty of farms that do ducks where the duck come to eat. They're not, you know, they're not force-fitted like a, a, like a machine or whatever. They are definitely still that also. But I don't know. To me, it's, like, it's kind of like saying, oh, we want to make caviar uh, in the lab because we don't want to hurt the fish and, you know, whatever. And, and, but these are like elite products. They're not. It's not a carrot. It's not, a, it's not a, an onion. It's not a, a wheat. It's not things that we know will feed millions of people. You know, this is still a very special product. And that, that's why they feel they need to make it because uh, so many people associate it with special occasions and holidays. Mm-hmm. So they wanted uh, people to have access to it, but in a way that they could defend as being sustainable. But, Tom, you feel like there are producers, um, and Terry, you mentioned it, that have a healthy approach to the duck-fattening liver. Is that correct? Well, I think that, yeah, because this issue's been out for a long time. Uh, Terry and I were picketed 20 years ago over, over foie, yeah. and, uh, along with several other Seattle restaurants. But uh, it was, uh, you know, we haven't served foie in years, but it's mostly because there's it's not what we do, right? It's a little bit different. So, right. Terry, uh, they're getting the cells from a duck egg, so it doesn't take ducks. They're growing from the duck egg cells into uh, this whole thing a that cultivator. they're making. Cultivator, yeah that they're making. Uh, and I would argue, Pamela, just to take the, kind of the devil's advocate side on this, because I'm not an impossible burger person from that perspective, because I, why manipulate it? It's like taking salmon, cooking it, grinding it up, putting it back together in a, in a patty and calling it a salmon burger. Why not just put a nice little piece of salmon on, as the burger? You know, that's, but this happens all the time. All of our food, I would, I would venture that every bit of our food that we're eating today has, been, has touched a lab surface somewhere because that's how we get to these these great production levels that we're at it's the all the hybrids the honey crisp apple you know these are these are all lab produced products that uh, so you can't just i don't think just um, put it all in one big pot like food, well, I, yeah, food shouldn't come from a lab it's it's constant we have we have uh, foods ag schools that work in labs all day long making wheat products and you know all sorts of things so Oh, I love the science of agriculture and improving crop quality and crop production. Mm-hmm. It's manipulating the food away from 
the form that it naturally grows in. Yeah, and so the question, I guess, on the table is, is just to be clear for both of us, Terry, is if we want to keep foie gras on our tables, uh, is it better to grow a natural duck and uh, maybe get a smaller liver? Because, I mean, the big thing about foie and the force feeding was to get these monster livers, right? So do you just right. have a duck and get a smaller liver? Is it still okay to kill and eat a duck liver? Pamela, that's, a, that's yes. part of the question on the table. Yes. Is it an anti-meat thing or is it an anti uh, uh, animal thing or is it just the lab it's the lab that's bugging me okay. i like the idea of a, a duck that is grown for that purpose mm-hmm. in a in a healthy environment that happens to grow a larger right. liver because of the foods that they're being fed yeah yeah, yeah I, and i'm with you 100 percent. i think i don't know i agree with you tom there's tons of stuff that have been in labs and everything but you know it is also i think it's we, we're in a time where people need to realize Food is very expensive if it's good. It takes money to raise food. It takes, I mean, there's many points between the time you go. To go into a supermarket and buy a gorgeous head of lettuce that is organically grown by somebody who cares is an expensive endeavor. And it is most importantly a luxury because in reality, and when you go back, you're supposed to have that in your backyard and grow it yourself and pick it yourself and work hard to get that lettuce out of the ground. Or if you have the luxury to live in an urban setting where you make supposedly a lot more money or a better living, that's why you get those products to come to the city and then you have to pay for them. But it is, I think we need to get to the junction of understanding that food is very, very expensive to produce. Good food, delicious food that's coming from naturally from the earth and it is not always available which is the other part that people have a very hard time dealing with. Right, food deserts. Not- they call it food deserts because, you know, uh, so, some people can't afford good organic food. That's just all there is to it. Let's take this one step further. So they've taken the uh, uh, freshly laid duck, el- uh, duck egg and they've taken some cells out, put them into a cultivator. The cells are then fed with proteins like amino acids and sugars, similar to the nutrients a duck would get from a diet of oats, corn, and grass. The cells are then harvested and transformed into foie gras in a process that uses significantly less land and water than traditional methods. So the only way that that makes any sense to me is if somebody is throwing away the rest of the duck and just keeping the liver, right? Because there is this issue of animal waste and human waste that's causing the uh, uh, global warming in our world uh, on Earth right now, right? Uh, uh, that's why yeah. a lot of people are saying that you should stop eating beef, right? Because beef is the number right, one producer right. of methane and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. So uh, water is getting more and more scarce. So is there a reasonable side to this that it saves water and that it saves land? So duck, they use from the feathers all the way down to the bones. So I don't know what waste do we have here because I really... Well, not everyone does. Okay, so that's possible, but in general... Farmers who do foie gras, who raise the duck for that purpose, uses everything from the right. duck, mm-hmm. from the fat, from the feathers, from the, you know, they use everything because, they, because it's, it's a processing that's been going on for quite some time, and they figured out how to use everything. So I'm not quite sure where the waste part goes. Now, there is definitely, by, when you talk like when, the way you just did and explain that, there's definitely a saving on, on, yes, on water and on all that. I understand that. But what do you have in the end? Do you have a foie gras or do you have 
something that tastes kind of like foie gras. And well, I'm it's like, made from a duck pro- cell. It's not, I, I would say you would have foie gras. I mean, I'm not defending this product because I don't even know a thing about it. Right, but I'm just yeah, saying it's made from a duck egg. It's not like it's made from a hemoglobin from a plant like the Impossible Burger is, right? right? Uh, right. There, there's not a bit of meat in that burger, whereas this is actually starts from a duck egg. So it's a little right, bit more right. natural in that way. There you go. Up next, uh, Chef Ross Lewis tells us about his restaurant, Trace, and his microgreen and mushroom business. Uh, and then we're also going to talk with Annie Elmore about the Dim Sum series here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. It's all on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show, 97.3 FM. Welcome to hour number two of the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. Thanks for hanging through that uh, bit of a wait there. We appreciate you. We hope you're out in your garden or in your car driving down the freeway at 100 miles an hour because there's no traffic or uh, that you're making, making dinner for your family and friends, or even possibly have reservations at one of our joints tonight uh, and uh, are going to see us later in the evening. So um, we are have another whole hour. We've got Annie Elmore to talk dim sum here at the new Hot Stove Society dim sum classes where you make and eat right here in this room. Uh, we've got our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge, which is always a good time, brought to you by Rub With Love. And the first thing we're going to jump into uh, is a young man named Chef Ross. Well, I guess his name is not Chef. His name is Ross Lewis. <laughs> he is the executive sous chef at the Trace Market over at the W Hotel. Brand new situation over there. But, Pamela, you had this thought, and I think it's interesting to the, the kind of follow um, uh, Ross's path. And so maybe, Ross, you could uh, lead us into how did you get where you are? Because uh, it's my understanding you went to culinary school and all the process you did all the typical um hard work <laughs> levels of work you know, where you do all the work and everyone else gets all the credit hi so uh yes um so i started out at uh pacific grill in tacoma under uh chef gordon nacarado mm-hmm. and from there i was just like front of the house and a pantry position opened up and that was my start into the culinary world was, uh, you know, getting into pantry, having no experience beforehand. And it was eye-opening experience, you know, learning how to cook fantastic food, you know, for me, my family. And I fell in love from there. And so uh, you were working in front of the house or were you washing, uh, b- uh, bussing tables, that kind of thing? And then you just had an itch for the, the food side of things? Exactly. So I was, you know, bussing tables and it was really my first job I ever had. And I saw how the kitchen worked and saw how the diners, you know, love the food. And from there, I, you know, saw a position and just jumped into it. Super fun. That's what we we love when kids find their passion that way in our joints. But Uh, you went to school, too. That's what I was curious about. Since you were learning so much from the -the on-the-job training why did you yeah. feel it was necessary to go to the Culinary Academy at Seattle College? Because, you know, you're learning the book side as well as the on-the-job training side. It kind of gave me a full circle of working a full-time job, going to school, learning everything hands-on and also in theory. And it gave me so much. And from there, I went to Florence, Italy for two months through a program through the school and that was a completely different world than I've ever experienced before. And it gave me so much, um, you know, foresight into 
Italian cuisine, um, Italian language, the wine. It was amazing. And so do you uh, tip towards Italian preparations in your food and menu design now? You know, uh, some of it comes from there, but it kind of comes from everywhere. It comes from Pacific Griddle. It comes from even Ariel, um, one of my mentors that, you know, I've been with for a long time. It, you know, it comes from the Pacific Northwest. So it's, it's kind of everywhere. You know, uh, I, number one question I get asked as a chef, especially by youngsters is, should I go to culinary school and which one should I go to? Now you've done this path. Yeah. I, I actually have not, right? Terry was an apprentice, a classic apprentice in France. I have never done this. Yeah. I've always learned on the job. Uh, now that you look back at your uh, last 10, 15 years, what would you tell a youngster that's interested in the culinary arts? You know, it's um, it's all about, you know, getting the experiences. It's all about, you know, soaking up as much as you can because, you know, life brings you in so many different directions. When you go into, you know, culinary arts, you may think you're going one way, but then you go another based on passion and you know, maybe you want to be a butcher. So you go to culinary school and you're butchering a, a chicken or, you know, you fall in love with, you know, making sauces. It's it's really, it's a world that opens up once you kind of get into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with that. I think I always recommend people to go to school as well because I think that, like, like for example, what you did, uh, Ross, you know, you get thrown into yeah. a pantry, never been in a kitchen before, Obviously, you tried your best and all that stuff, but it's extremely important to learn the basics of how the technology of the kitchen works. I think it's important to have yeah. that under your belt. And there is plenty of things that you never learn on the job, and you do need to know it. You know, it's like uh, how do you conserve things? How, you know, there's a few details that people don't take the time to teach you on the job. So I, I think yeah. it's important to have some of that education as well as on the job. I mean, on the job is where you're going to learn your job, but on yeah. the in the school is where you're going to learn the base technique of your profession. Exactly, one hundred percent. But you need both sides of the story because if you go to culinary school and you've never worked in a restaurant, it's a completely different world from having all the time in the world to prepare a dish compared to a ticket comes in, you get the first course out. <laughs> Then you get the second course out. It's a way different world. So uh, culinary schools about 10, 15 years ago started offering, uh, I should say outside the Culinary Institute of America, started offering, offering four-year programs. But, and so you could actually get a real degree instead of just a culinary arts degree. Uh, you have a Bachelor of Applied Science in Hospitality Management. So that you came out of culinary school with a little bit more in your back pocket than a lot of people do. Yeah, exactly. And, and the reason I did that is because, you know, I wanted to learn the theory side as much as on the job training side. And that's also what led me to work at the W hotel is, you know, you get the, the hotel side of it. You understand that the restaurant's a part of, you know, a bigger thing and you're working kind of as a, as a conglomerate, as a city to make an experience for a guest, just like a restaurant, you know, goes through and does it food wise. So, it kind of gave me a, a wider knowledge of kind of uh, the management side of uh, restaurants and hotels. And uh, I know you're into farming now. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. But where do you see your professional side headed? Is it uh, Are you going to go into hotels as, as a, a manager? Are you going to stay in the kitchen? What are you thinking? 
you know, I, I love the kitchen and I love creating and I love the aspect of bringing local products into the kitchen. So I see my future in the kitchen. I love knowing all the other aspects of the hotel, but the kitchen is kind of my passion. All right. We're talking with Ross awesome. Lewis. He's the executive sous chef of Trace Market at the W in Seattle. And when we come back, we're going to uh, extend our conversation a bit and talk about uh, microgreens and mushrooms and the things that you're doing outside of the kitchen uh, that helps make your kitchen a better place to be and your dining room a delicious place to be. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're having so much fun here today in the Hot Stove Society kitchen and a radio show. Chef Terry in the Chapeau is whistling while he works. It's sunny. I'm happy. Hey, why not? Hey, why not? I'm Tom Douglas, and uh, our guest today is Ross Lewis. He's the executive sous chef at Trace Market in W. Seattle. And, Ross, we were just talking about your, your rise through the culinary ranks uh, from uh, jumping back into the pantry with uh, Super Green to making a choice to stay in culinary arts and actually getting a d- degree in it and in hospitality. Uh, and let's talk about your next little extension you've been doing outside of the kitchen but has so much to do with the kitchen. Uh, your uh, Rain City Microgreens and the Covington Mushroom Company. Uh, what's going on there? So this has been you know, a growing passion of mine. So one of my mentors... Stephen Ariel, when I first uh, got to the W Hotel, had a microgreens business that he was supplying local restaurants with microgreens of all different, you know, sorts. He brought me to his operation one time and I was blown away. It was 2,000 square foot warehouse, all timers, lights, and rows of microgreens. And he had been doing it for 10 years prior because he saw a lot of microgreens coming in from other states and he wanted to, you know, bring the most local products to his restaurant, but also to other restaurants. And that's how I fell in love with it by seeing it at our restaurant and also following, you know, how he built this business. And that's how I fell in love with the business. Mm -hmm. And then you extended that to the uh, mushroom uh, company. Exactly. So, during COVID, actually, um, you know, everything came to a complete stop. And I had a, you know, full warehouse of microgreens. And I had to, you know, figure out what to do with those. And then also, you know, what else I can offer. And a lot of the restaurants were, you know, closed down. So it gave me time to focus on other things that I could expand. And that's where the mushrooms came in. So I did a, you know, had a tent in my large 2,000 square foot warehouse that had the same temperature, had the same climate, and I expanded into the mushrooms. What kind of mushroom do you grow? So I do shiitake mushrooms, golden oyster, and, and blue oyster mushrooms. On the microgreens, the one that I'm most interested in is the oriental wasabi mustard. What the heck do you use that with? So what you can use that with, that goes really good with, so we have on our menu at Trace Market, um, we have a strawberry and tomato mozzarella caprese salad, and that goes amazingly with that. So with balsamic, basil, mozzarella, you put it on top of that, and we have it on our uh, grab-and-go case, and it's to die for. 
is it are the pea shoots the best seller of the microgreens? You know, honestly, the mix is our best seller because we do like twelve to fourteen different varieties from you know amaranth to three different types of radishes, purple, uh, daikon, and arrow. We do two different mustards, garnet and frilly mustard. Um, we do arugula in there. We do upland crest. So we do a wide range, and the chefs love the color on it. When people come to Midtown and they see the big W, they don't really think about uh, a market, like a farmer's market almost, uh, in, in the downstairs restaurant space. Uh, what, what can people find when they get to your uh, market and restaurant? What, what are some of your favorite dishes? So what we're trying to pivot to, because after the pandemic, it's kind of changed a lot of things. We're trying to be artisanal, fast, local, and earth-friendly. So on our breakfast menu, for example, we have a quiche. It's a five-inch quiche that has shiitake mushrooms in it, and it's garnished with the golden oyster mushroom. And it's absolutely amazing. We make it in the morning when we first get in. So if you're the first few customers that order it, it's coming straight out of the oven from being baked fresh. Mm-hmm. What are some other things that people can find? Uh, we have a blazing bagel sandwich that has Templer bacon from Bellingham. It has Tillamook cheese, and it's seared with garlic aioli on the, on the bagel, and it's, that's also really good. And that's for breakfast. And then for lunch, we have salmon with corn puree and then corn shoots that I grow here at uh, Rain City Greens. Mm-hmm. Corn shoots? Yeah. 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 So they're what? Yeah, corn shoots, and so they're done in the dark, so that they get the the yellow, what you think of corn. Otherwise, if you did them in the in the light, they become green. And I see that um, there is a home delivery service for all of these yummy green. How does that work? So I I never did. Um, I mostly sold to restaurants before the pandemic. But once I got in, you know, the pandemic happened, I had to pivot and find a way to still get my product out there. So there's these markets called Reiko markets, and they started in uh, Finland. And it was a way for farmers to get their product to market from long distances. So there'd be these groups where people could join and buy product ahead of time. And then the farmer would bring the product to a location and then they'd pick it up on like Friday or Saturday. So during COVID, that's what I got into one of those in Edomclaw, Washington. And from there, you know, people wanted all local, um, you know, straight from the producer products. And that's where the microgreens and the mushrooms kind of expanded um, coming out of the pandemic and yeah, sold the customers. I, I want that coming to my home every week, <laughs> uh, fresh greens and mushrooms. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Chef Terry, how do you like to cook uh, with microgreens? I, I remember very vividly buying um, Stephen's microgreen when he started, Chef Stephen. Uh, yeah. Actually, he's the executive chef of the W, correct? Yes, executive chef, yeah. So I remember when he started his, uh, his uh, microgreen uh, business, and I remember trying the amaranth and the corn and the all the different greens that he had. And I tell you, they were absolutely tasty and fantastic. There was no, there was no dog in the show. <laughs> it was all good stuff, like the celery and all that stuff. That was really tasty stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way. I, I think then um, 
often you see microgreen used, even in my own restaurant, I saw it before, uh, used very, like as a last, as a last uh, resort, you know, put something on the plate, not often associating the flavor with what's on the plate necessarily. Where I think if you actually think about it and you use them correctly, it's a great, it can be totally delicious. I mean, using a, a micro celery into a salad or into a dish, it definitely finishes up with the different layers of flavor than anything else. Now, micro bok choy or micro choy obviously has a much less flavor intensity, so you're using it for a different purposes, using it for texture and mix maybe in a salad. But um, the, the, there are beautiful, beautiful microgreens that are definitely deserving to be used in the kitchen for sure. Yeah. I like them as that great finishing crunch uh, the, on yeah. top. So you have to put them on at the very last second or they wilt into a pile of nothingness. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Ross, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, Ross is the executive sous chef of Trace Market at the W Seattle, also uh, running a couple of farm-based businesses, Rain City Microgreens and Covington Mushroom Company. So you have got your hands full, sir. Yes, it's uh, yeah, it's busy but fun. It's um, I love I love what I do. So. Oh, awesome, you're welcome back on this show anytime. Just give us a shout. In the meantime, uh, let's all get down to Trace and give it a give it a try with their new rendition of of who they are. Up next, Annie Elmore is going to join us to talk dim sum for our new Hot Stove Society dim sum classes, where you make and eat all at the same time. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society show, ninety-seven three FM. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And Terry, we have the lovely and feisty Annie Elmore here. She's uh, going to talk about the dim sum class she's doing here at the Hot Stove and how, if you're interested, you can participate because I think we're going to keep running these for a while, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's a monthly thing. A monthly thing? Yeah. We okay. already had... Um, People sign up for September, even though we don't have the menu set up yet. <laughs> That's They're good. so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, like, they're like, I don't care what the menu is. We'll be there. That's nice. Yeah. Well, people live, love dim sum. Oh, yeah. And so I think, uh, uh, as I have said in the past, uh, my favorite part about dim sum is going to and ordering it in a Chinese restaurant and then having them correct every word that I say. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think I know how to say it, but they, they know how to say it. Oh, yeah. I mean, hey, they... They correct you and smile at you at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, Terry. Tom, do you know my, f- my favorite way to go to Dimson is to go with you because you look like you know what you're doing. So it's always interesting to do that. Yeah, I know. I order. I, I go think I say, I'll have the Normai guy and the Lobako and the Shumai and the Hagao. And they, and they just look at me like I'm speaking <laughs> Russian instead of Chinese. They're probably thinking you're singing to them. I know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, what are you going to make in class? So for this series, we are making the radish cake, which is pretty popular. It's one of my favorite. We're Me making too. the custard tart, which is my all-time childhood favorite, too. Uh, my family always get it. I haven't got it since I was with my husband. I got it when we first started dating, and he didn't like it, so I haven't had it for a really long time. But when we do go with my family, we do get it. And then we're making um, the soy noodles with bean sprouts and green onions, which is that something you have to have on dim sum menu everywhere you go. doesn't matter fancy or not fancy. When you say that, you mean because it tells you the quality of the dim sum? Like 
everyone has it. So, like, I feel that way about Humbau, right? Like, yeah. I have it at each of the dims or some joints, and it helps me decide if which one is better than the yeah. other. Yeah, it's also stable, too. When you go to dim sum, uh, I mean, I went to Hong Kong, and we went to probably four different dim sum almost every day. And we went to places that you paid $150 per person. And even that, they still have it on the menu. And it's just something that is so traditional and so stable that you go and you know for sure that's if it's good or not. Mm-hmm. In some places, they make their own noodles and, um, you know, the soy sauce that they, they use, how they handle the product and stuff like that. But something so simple could be so bad mm-hmm. and could be so good. I think it's true in every culture and in every uh, in every food culture, there is those staple dishes that yeah. actually trademark the food or the place. Like like Tom was saying, this is how you know what restaurant you're in. When you know, I think in in, uh, in France, for example, soups are usually a good indicator. You know, a restaurant that can make a good soup is a good a good restaurant. You yeah. know, as opposed to mediocre. So. Yeah. So you're going to teach your, your class uh, how to make this, and then when they get done, they sit down and eat it, right? They're only getting one hands-on. Uh, so Tom is m- misleading you guys a little bit. Um, they are only doing one hands-on, and then the rest I will demo, and then they will get to taste whatever that I'm demoing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it just some of the stuff, like the radish cakes, it takes a long time to make. It has to cool down completely before we can cut it. Uh which I never knew because I always ate at them somewhere. They slice it off and they sear it. But apparently you can eat it while it's still warm without searing, mm-hmm. um, which is a healthier way to do it. But, uh. <laughs> I mean, it's rice and taro. I don't Tom. Come on. No, I'm just saying that it might be healthier. It's the same exact thing, and, and it really doesn't take a lot of searing. No. I mean, a lot of fat when you sear it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, eh, yeah. That's but all I I'm mean, saying. like, uh, yeah. I mean, but for some people, any fat is fat, you know? Yeah. Um, but. You should stay home. <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> dim sum is all about grease. That's why they serve you tea to digest your, you know, all the grease that you ingested. And I always like to take a nap afterwards, too, which it does put you to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, that takes all day. You have to soak the rice for 12 hours. You puree that and you turn that into the mixture and then you steam it and then you cool it off and you slice it and then you sear it. So that's something we can't really have people make it in uh, class. Uh, so that's something we'll make it for them. And then I would demo it so they can see every step of the way. And then, uh, you know, they eat the f- finished product. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think right. this time they are going to be learning on how to make pro shumai which is shumai but we dip in sticky um rice and then steam it so you get like rice on top of mm-hmm. that so, so it's a little bit different than the normal ones exactly yeah uh the uh, uh lobako which is the turnip cake that you were talking about mm-hmm. uh, w- was the original side dish on my opening menu of the dahlia lounge 32 years ago no way i always love that dish and so i made my own out of rice flour and shredded yep. daikon and mm-hmm. dried shrimp and yep. a little bit of green onion and cilantro and 
And the, so that was on. Yeah, I made my own homemade version of that. Oh yeah, it's so good. Do you have lup chang in yours, or you keep that out? I kept it out on that particular one because I was serving it with salmon, and it was like a no oh, no meat dish. But lup chang, which is a sweet Chinese sausage, oh so good, uh, minced in there is a really nice combination. Yeah. Talk yeah. about fatty. That's about fifty percent <laughs> fat sausage right there. But it's uh, you put so little in there, you know. Well, that's the thing about yeah. uh, cooking out of the Chinatown barbecue yeah. window, or or you know other areas. Uh, that particular cuisine and culture spreads the meat out so much, yeah. right, and fills in with uh, the, the blanks of daikon radish, yes. uh, all of that. Yeah, and they use everything. Oh everything yeah, using dim sum. Everything. Oh yeah, they hide it really well, but they used everything. But that's why it tastes so good, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what kind of dumpling are you going to make? This? You're going to make shumai, and then what else? Uh, yeah. So the shumai uh, we call it pearl shumai. So it, they would dip into the sweet sticky rice, and then we'll steam it. So the top when we steam it, the rice will cooked. So um, it looks like pearl sitting on top of the shumai. So a little bit different than the normal stuff that you get to see. Um, but just make it a little bit more fun. Like Tom said earlier, you know, you want to do traditional and then a kind of like a little bit fancier. And this is a little bit fancier. Um, you know, you mentioned ooh. Hong Kong before. And uh-huh. I honestly thought when I went to Hong Kong and started going to some of the big original dim sum joints mm-hmm. that I was going to taste like crazy stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it's very much like what we see in our dim sum totally. places here. I was very surprised by that. Almost a little disappointed uh, in that I thought I was going to get something wild. Yeah. But you don't. It's it's no. very traditional food. Oh, yeah. Super traditional. Um, but, of course, you know, if you go to a really nice hotel, it's a little bit more intricate mm-hmm. on the forming and the dumpling, the shapes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think you're paying for the art form of forming the dumplings. Right. But the filling is almost exactly the same yeah. they aren't there i mean that's not that many ingredients that you can form in there you got what pork you got shrimp you got peanuts you got yeah. bamboo shoots you got mushrooms there's only so much you can form into different flavors you know you got garlic chives right. and stuff like that it's also terry um a culture that a cultural thing that i think as an american chef i've still have failed to grasp that is how important tradition is in certain flavor profiles and textures in other cultures' cuisines, and they would never, right. they would never change that for because that's very important, right? Is that the same way in French Exa- cuisine? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there is there is definitely in France, and you don't want to mess with as well, or you want to keep traditional because that's the expectation. The expectation is not. I mean, I, I think that most people are not looking for a coco vin that is made super advanced or whatever to change then they want to look for the traditional dish the way it's supposed to be with the flavor that they know and and i think it's the same thing with dim sum for for chinese food for any kind of food i think every culture has different ideas of what their base is but people like to recognize those dishes it's it's endearment it's really beautiful right. to you know it's like going back home you know and it's it's fun my nature is to go ahead and make it once and then make it my own way. <laughs> no, exactly. And and that's American. That's very Yeah, yeah. This is the this is the country where we take things that we like and make them we, we change them with our own ideas, our own mm-hmm. way, our own taste or whatever. But most cultures don't do that like that. You know, they don't do it that way. Annie, how do uh, people find out more about your classes here? Um hotstove.com. Okay. And uh, have you posted, uh, they're going to be once a month or a couple of times a month, Pamela? Uh, we have the August and September dates already posted okay. yeah. and selling. 
All right. Yeah. So, and if you want to come meet the feisty Annie yeah. Elmore, uh, all four feet, uh, <laughs> nine of her. 4'11", thank four, you very four much. 4'11", of her. Uh, and watch out. She's a pistol. And she's got a black belt in karate, and she'll kick your patootie. Uh, <laughs> uh, when we come Don't back, it's time, for, uh, <laughs> it's time for Rub With Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia. And, Annie, are you going to join us for this? Apparently, I am. Oh, so, I guess this is your way of kicking my butt. Well, we'll see. We'll oh, see what happens no. here. Coming up next on Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time for Rub with Love, Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia, right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. Our special guest is uh, one of the instructors here at the Hot Stove Society, Annie Elmore. Welcome back. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. Chef Annie is uh, quite a strategist and competitive uh, one uh, person. And so we have to be on our toes today in order to win this challenge. I am well aware of the challenge. It's in a small form, but it's very, very feisty and dangerous. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Uh, Our trivia is brought to you by Rub With Love, small batch made versatile rubs, sauces, and mustards that bring an extra layer of flavor to any meal you use them in. Uh, We make them right there in Ballard at our warehouse at 52nd and 14th. You can buy some rub and you can get a pizza all at the same time. Uh, you can find it in the specialty shops and butcher uh, stores or online at uh, your buddy Stan or Amazon or TomDouglas.com. Bartels, you name it, uh, they carry it uh, in the Rub With Love brand. So, Pamela, today, uh, if you'll tell us who's going to win our prize and how to play the game. Our winner today is Kim Johnson. Thank you for watching the show. Our prize, according to our product manager, the delightful Carol Bosch, are three of your very favorites, the peri-peri, mm. the mushroom, and the steak. Nice. Do you agree mm. that you love those? I love all oh, three. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. And they're actually back in stock because we've been out of, out of stock for we're months. We're so excited yeah, about that. I know. The jars have arrived. Awesome. Uh, the game is played with each contestant. We have three getting five questions. The loser has the responsibility of shipping the prize to the winner, so... Uh, Kim, make sure you send us your address. And, <laughs> and the, the winner is typically somebody that's been watching us on Facebook Live during our Friday morning yep. taping, right? So, yep. so we're going to start with Terry. And the first one, you're going to nail. What do you call the tall chef's hat? A toque. Yes. A token. You don't of smoke it, you just wear it. <laughs> <laughs> Do, number two, uh, do pearls melt in vinegar? Uh, yes, they do. Yes. Every time you lick a stamp, how many calories do you use? One, ten, or fifty? Oh, at least ten. It's only one. Are there any oh. calories in the glue that you're licking? You don't, that's the real no, question. No, 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 wait. That's, wait, hold on. That's because you don't lick it like I do. I lick it ten times. <laughs> that's aggressive. <laughs> but I bet your stamps stay on. Can't I'm wait to get that post sure in the sticks. mail. <laughs> oh, number four. Is Oklahoma's state vegetable the Brussels sprout, the radish, or watermelon? Watermelon. How did you know that? I just know it cannot possibly be the other two. <laughs> I've been there. There's nothing growing around there except watermelon because it's hot. Uh, what is the most popular pizza topping in Brazil? Peas, sausage, or eggplant? 
I'm gonna go with the, the eggplant. Sounds very appealing, but that would be probably not. I'm gonna go with sausage. It's peas. Oh, I don't want to cool. go to Brazil now if they are eating peas <laughs> <laughs> on their pizza. <laughs> All right, Annie. All right. The ancient- Three out of five. You have to beat that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard one to beat. The ancient <laughs> Greeks chewed a gum, like a gum-like substance called mastic. Was the source a tree, an algae, or a vegetable? I'm going to say tree. Yes, mastic Woo-hoo! is from the tree. One out of five. <laughs> Watch out, Tom. I know, I'm shaking. <laughs> Which is the second most popular vegetable in America? Cucumbers, lettuce, or green beans? Green beans. It's lettuce. What? <laughs> Nobody eats green beans. Yeah, there's green beans in a can that people eat a ton in the 60s, and they still sell at the grocery store. Though it's not even green in there, it's brown, but... <laughs> good try, good try. Um, onion is Latin for sparrow or large pearl or river rock. Large pearl? Yep, of course. That was an easy of one. Of course you knew that. <laughs> Our, I like that. That was an easy one. <laughs> Are radishes and cabbages in the same family? Say yes. Yes. Oh, you are smoking, Terry. And what is... No, no, no. Three three to three. Come on, come on. One more. You get one more. What is the fat content in carrots? I eat a lot of carrots. (laughs) So 99%? (laughs) Oh, God. Don't be fooled by Tom. (laughs) <laughs> All right, then less than 50? It's zero. Wow! <laughs> that is less than... <laughs> that is the it lamest is answer I've ever heard. <laughs> so, yes, you're, you're correct. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> All right. I guess, uh, Terry, are we going to let that slide? Uh, I, you know what? You guys, you guys do the call. I, yeah, of course we're gonna let it slide. I think slide. it's a fun. It's a fun. <laughs> She's game. Dreamboat Annie. You, can, you gotta let that slide. Oh. All right, Mister. I just know. I, I just know. I have to face her again, so I don't want to jeopardize my life. <laughs> what percent has broccoli consumption gone up in the last twenty years? One hundred percent, nine hundred percent, or fifteen hundred percent? Broccoli, huh? Broccoli. I've always eaten it, so it's hard for me to know. Mm-hmm. I've, you're, I love broccoli. You're a good broccoli eater. Um, I'm going to say 100%. It was 900%. 900%. Um, our I love broccoli. Oh, What's yeah. your favorite way to have broccoli? Seared with garlic and finished with preserved lemon. Ah. Mm. What about you? Me? I like black bean sauce broccoli. Yeah. Just mm, hot wok. That's good. Hot um, that's yeah. good. So good. All right. Are pumpkin flowers edible? Yes. Winner. Yes. <laughs> Lettuce is a member. Uh, or should I say more than 50% are. <laughs> <laughs> Go let that slide. <laughs> Lettuce is a member of the sunflower family. Is that true or Absolutely false? Absolutely true. Whoa, you are trying for the win today. How many pineapples does a pineapple plant produce in a year? Uh, I will say six. One. One. Yeah. One lonely 
One lonely pineapple. One lonely pineapple. Yeah. I got to see that new movie, <laughs> The Lonely Whale. <laughs> you guys been hearing about that. That's for the next show. And finally. <laughs> How many whales can you eat in a year? <laughs> Less than 50. <laughs> that answer works for just about everything. Yes. What can you chew on to stop your eyes from watering when chopping an onion? What can you chew on? Mastic. <laughs> the recommendation is a wooden spoon. I think, or a toothpick would work then. <laughs> You're paying for the shipping, buddy. And the prize. <laughs> Nothing unusual there. Um, if you want to be, you trounced him, Annie. If you want to yeah. be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook Live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo, as usual. Uh, the show is produced by Pam Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on 97.3 FM, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend.